Well, if you would uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we are continuing our series in Ephesians. I know from my perspective, it has been very rich for me just personally studying the depths of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. In the, for the first three chapters, Paul, as we have studied, and we finished chapter 3 last week, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been unfolding for his readers the eternal purpose of God worked out in the life of the church, worked out in history. And in, in light of a, a divided humanity, in light of a world in which we live in, where divisions are very, very rampant, where division happens, whether it's between husband and wife, parent and child, co-worker to co-worker, employer to employee, governments to states, world nations to nations. There is, there is a theme and there is an epidemic of division that lives within our society. And it, it, it touches every one of us. To some degree, it touches every one of us and it affects our lives. And it, in, any, in many ways, it hurts our lives. And wonderfully, Paul is aware of the divisions that have occurred in his day and age because there is a serious division between the Jewish nation and Gentiles. Gentiles were anyone who wasn't Jewish. And even among the Gentiles, there were divisions. Because there are divisions between the Greeks. And anyone who wasn't a Greek was considered, <clears throat> excuse me, a barbarian. Jews considered Gentiles just impure, unclean, unworthy. Including Greeks. And Greeks considered anybody who wasn't Greek a barbarian. And it divided the world. And Paul writes in Ephesians about the work of Christ. How Jesus, when he came first reconciled us to God the Father because we were divided from God. We were separated from God because of our sin, because of the choices we made to live lives on our own, to live apart from God. We might have thoughts of God, but our lives, do they reflect the life of God as taught in God's Word? And for those who were separated from God, which was all of humanity, a remedy was needed. And that remedy was Jesus Christ coming, becoming a man, living a sinless life, and dying on a cross, experiencing the just punishment, the justice of God for sin, for our sin, so that we could be reconciled to God. That the gap between us and God, the divide between us and God, which was so expansive, which unattainable, impossible for us to cross, that divide, that divide was suddenly closed through Jesus Christ. When we come to faith, when we put our trust, when we believe in Jesus Christ. And Paul writes about all of this in three chapters in Ephesians. And, and its culmination is there's this new thing that God has created in Christ. 
as a result of Christ's death on the cross, as a result of Christ's resurrection from the dead, as a result of Jesus paying for our sins, that that new thing is called the church. And it's made up in, in Ephesians of Jews and Gentiles and Greeks. Those who were so once divided now have something in common. They are all sinners who've come to be saved by Jesus Christ. And now God has not only united these people to God the Father, but He's united them to one another. That's the church. And for three chapters we hear how Paul teaches us all of what God has done for us. And what He is doing in us. The church is the central purpose to God in the earth today. This book, like no other book, sets in place the teaching about what church life is in Jesus Christ. Who we are and and how we're to live. And in Ephesians 1 through 3, it's, it's really all about teaching, about what God has done. But then we move on to chapters 4 through 6, which is what we're going to begin to study today. And chapters 4 through 6 take a shift. Now it's, it's not just instruction, theology, the study of God. It's now about, okay, here's the truth. Do it. The Nike Swash logo comes out in chapter 4. Just do it. This is how you live for Christ. Let me read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4 through verse 6, which is what our study will be today. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Father, please help us this morning to understand these words. Help us to believe these words. Help us to live these words in practice. Lord, help me this morning through the many distractions in my mind. Help me to love and serve this church through the preaching of your word. May everyone here experience the kind and gracious presence of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul wants us to understand what the church is to look like practically. God expects his word to transform our lives. It's not just information that God is giving us. There is application. There is an expectation that we're going to begin to do the things we read about in scripture. In other words, we must change. Knowing biblical doctrine is the basis 
for us, biblical truth is the basis for us to live out our Christian lives. In other words, to be who we say we are. That there's an integrity, there's a truth behind the words we speak. That we say, we believe this, that this is true. And then our lives reflect that. But, now that we have, to, we have this truth, we have to bring it to bear upon our lives in a practical way. God's Word not only teaches truth, but you know what else it does? It makes a claim upon our lives. It makes a claim. It owns us. It says, this is, this is who you are, and this is what I own about you, says the Lord. I own your life. I've got a claim upon you. Doctrinal truth. This, this truth we read in God's Word has to always partner with practical application for it to be genuine, to, for it to be real. But God has promised, as we read at the end of chapter 3 last week, that He will empower us, He's assured us that He will strengthen us to be able to do all these things through God. That God will do it in us. Chapter 3 verse 20 and 21 is, is not the end of the chapter. It's the continuation which goes into chapter 4. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is, is doing something Within us, and he's doing it abundantly more than we could ask or think. And Paul is referencing this unity, this unification, this this united church that's come together, Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, from all walks of life. People who hated one another, who were divided, have now come together. People who have been rooted and grounded in love, Paul says, who now... Paul wants to have them comprehend the unlimited love of Christ for them. And the unlimited power God has given them. Why? Why unlimited power? Why unlimited love? So that the church would reflect the glory of God. And the church would be united. And that's what reflects the glory of God. That we are in unity with one another. I was... I confess, a horrible big brother. I had a little brother, two years, almost two years younger than me, who I personally owned. <laughs> For many, many years, we shared a room, and I would find numerous ways to sadly torture my younger brother. I don't know if it was just a disease that I had or um, my inability to be kind to my younger brother but I would torture that poor boy um, and he does love me today but I would, I would torture him I, we had a bunk bed and I was on the top, he's on the bottom and you know how there's, there's little rails that go underneath the bed to hold the top bed up and I would just line them with the heaviest books I can just on the edge and as he'd stick his head in to get in bed I'd bang my mattress and all those books would come falling down on his head it was just... I used to get home from the bus 
from, the, uh, from school before he did. So I, I once got on my roof and took out my BB gun and I was just shooting him as he's walking up the street. It was, it was just, it was harmless and fun things to do. And I, there, was, there wasn't a lot of unity between my younger brother and I. Until someone else picked up my younger brother. And I can't tell you how many kids that I kind of put in their place when they picked on my younger brother. I was the only one allowed to pick on my younger brother. But you know, it's interesting, that created a unity between us. Because he knew I was going to protect him. There was, there, but it was a false unity. It wasn't a real unity. But in the church, God not only desires... But I believe God demands. He demands. He makes a claim upon our lives that bear upon us that we are to be unified with one another genuinely. Unity in the church is created by God's Spirit. But as Paul writes here, it must be maintained by God's people. Unity in the Spirit is created by God's Spirit, but it must be maintained by God's people. The unity of the Spirit, as we note in in verse 3 of chapter 4, has been created by God. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit has created unity in the church, and thus it is indestructible. In other words, you cannot destroy the unity of the Spirit. Now, I, I, I know what you're thinking immediately. Wait a minute, that's not my experience. I think about my experience maybe in local church life, and that's not necessarily true, Larry. I, I see the unity of the Spirit destroyed. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. In the church universal, the church worldwide, there is a unity by God's Spirit that, that joins us together. And that unity... The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. That unity will be in place until Christ returns. But we need to keep it. And what you've experienced and what I've experienced in the reality of church life and relationships is that sometimes we fail to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We fail to keep it. But God's church can never ultimately be divided because God is the one who's united all things in him. In fact, in in Ephesians 1 verse 10, Paul alludes to this. He says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's That's the glory of God's church is that it's always going to be ultimately unified. But there is a work to be done. There's a practical application. There's a reality that we face. And that is, as we read in in chapter 4, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That it takes work. It takes maintenance. That there's always something to be done.
when we moved up here, we moved into what was called a maintenance-free home. I think that's really cool. But the builder hasn't shown up once to vacuum our carpets. It's not maintenance-free. Clean our bathrooms. Clean my garage out. No, it takes work on my part. Yeah, we have to maintain the unity of the, of the Spirit. But we can fail to keep it practically. And so as Paul begins the first three chapters in a book that is the most descriptive and the most theological book on the church, he begins with the most important topic. Unity. Now it's interesting, he doesn't begin with leadership in chapter 4. He doesn't begin with worship as the most important topic of the church. He doesn't begin with preaching. He doesn't begin with small groups. He doesn't begin with evangelism. He begins with this topic. Unity. He begins with Christian unity. I think Paul gives us three three ideas here, three points that I want to go through. The first thing is, it's a worthy call. The second would be a worthy character. And the third would be a worthy cause. So a worthy call. God, one of my, one of my favorite all-time passage is, is in Hebrews chapter 1. A worthy, see, God speaks here. Verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, something spoke and you heard. God spoke. You've been called to Christ. God spoke. God spoke to me, a a man who was, had, had no interest in God. A man who thought that I could do life on my own terms. A man who who had no interest in the things of God. I wasn't waiting around to hear God. And one day, God, God's voice broke through and He spoke. And Hebrews 1 is, is one of my favorite passages. Long ago, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son. In other words, God has spoken to us through Jesus Christ. And God spoke to me. And and that is this call. That if you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Christ, you are here this morning believing that Christ has died for your sins. You have heard this call. God spoke and you heard. God spoke. He opened up your ears to hear. In chapter 2, Paul writes that we used to walk in sin and death and we could not hear him. But then he spoke to us by his son and and having been chosen, verse verse 4 of chapter 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, God spoke Because in eternity past, long before this world was ever fashioned, before there was any dirt and water and trees and air and sun and moon, before there was anything here, there was zip, nothing. Before this world was ever created, God had chosen you 
to know Him. God had chosen you to no longer be divided from Him. God had chosen you to no longer be separated from Him. God had chosen you to be one of His children. In love, Paul writes, He predestined us to be His children. God chose you long ago. And He spoke to us through His Son. He made this call. And having been chosen, we are now alive in Christ. Scripture says that we were dead in sin. In other words, we had no spiritual life, no spiritual inclination. And the Bible says that you're dead. Not physically dead, you're spiritually dead. But God made us alive in Christ. Scripture says that when we are dead in sin, when we are walking in sin rather than walking in a manner that is worthy of this calling. When we are dead in sin, we don't walk with God, and we are under God's judgment. We deserve justice for our law-breaking. And yet this call says we are forgiven. This call says that we are clothed in righteousness. This call says that we've been promised eternal life. That when this life ends... It's not just annihilation. When this life ends, it's not just you cease to exist. When this life ends, there's something more. And it's an eternity with God or it's an eternity without God. And God called and He spoke and He said, walk in a manner worthy of that call. Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of this amazing, almost it's inexplicable call of God speaking individually, personally, to say, come to faith in me. Believe in me. Paul says, Describe in your mind. Think about what God has done for you. Think about all that He has done. All the forgiveness and being clothed in righteousness and being alive in Christ and being promised eternal life. Think about those things. And He says, now, walk in the truth of that. That means something to you now. It's a worthy call. As a prisoner, Paul writes in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner, Paul sacrificed everything for Christ. This is the second time he acknowledges he's a prisoner. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul begins, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. Paul is in a Roman prison. He is in a Roman prison awaiting death. Paul has been in a Roman prison numerous times. And now he's saying, as a prisoner for Christ, he doesn't see himself as a prisoner of Nero. He doesn't see himself as a prisoner of Roman soldiers. He sees himself as a prisoner for Christ because Christ called him to walk in a manner worthy. That his life is now all God's. That he's owned by God. Paul doesn't allow his circumstances to affect his view of what God has done. He knew the Christian life could be a costly one. And it is. The Christian life 
is a costly one. Don't take it lightly. The Christian life is a costly one. My first trip to India. We were in a we were at the ministry center that I was visiting. And I met a young man at the ministry center who had no legs. He was born with polio. And he had no legs. And he moved around the ministry center. He sat on a bike. A, a flat, not a not a bi- upright bike, but a, a bike with a, a big wheel on the front, two little wheels on the side. And he would pedal with his hands. And I'm sure you've seen that at marathons, guys running marathons doing that. And he's pedaling with his hands. And here this young man had come to Christ, been thrown out of his family because he was not a Hindu any longer. And yet, as you sat and talked with this young man, who I had an opportunity to talk with him, the joy that exuded from this young man's face that God had done something for him that God had saved him that God had called him he wanted to honor Jesus with his life and so what did he do he'd ride to other villages and tell people about the good news of the gospel that is walking in a manner worthy of the call and that's what Paul is after. This, that man's life inspired me and my walk with Christ. And Paul urges us in the same way to walk in a manner, in the same manner with which he walked. The manner that he walked with as a prisoner for Christ. And the question that Paul simply asked this morning is, how are you walking? How are you walking? What is, what is your life like when you're walking and no one else is watching? Is that life worthy of the call that God has given you? It's a great responsibility to walk in a manner. And it Paul's ultimate goal in this, in this walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, is towards, first and foremost, unity in the church. And we'll get to that in just a moment, how that fits. But there's a great responsibility to being called to Christ. P.T. O'Brien in his commentary says this, God's gracious calling not only bestows great privileges on us, It also carries with it solemn responsibilities grounded in the gospel of salvation which we've received. It carries with it solemn responsibilities. We can walk in a manner worthy. It's a worthy call. But secondly, we are to have worthy character. Look at verse 2, chapter 4. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
We are to have worthy character. Now, if you'll notice these things about humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, there's really no need for any of that if you live by yourself on an island. I think I've told you this before, this story, and but it bears repeating. The story of a, a man who was stranded on an island been there for 20 years a boat finally comes along and as it pulls up to the shore these guys get off and they see this man ragged clothes beard down to his his knees and and they notice behind them three little huts they go to him and you know he's overjoyed that they finally found him on this deserted island and and they said hey what what are the three huts for and he said well well this one over here is is my house what are the other two oh well that one is the first church i went to The temptation, the temptation for division is real everywhere. But in these character qualities, Paul is mentioning humility, gentleness, patience, forbearing in love, bearing with one another in love. All of these things take place in the context of life with one another. You don't need humility when you're by yourself. I mean, in God's eyes, you do, but you don't need to practice humility. You don't need to display humility. Here is, this is a foundation, a foundational Christian virtue. We can't begin to please God without humility. Unity only exists in an atmosphere of humility. Proverbs says, where there is discord, there is pride. We need, we need to be humble. Paul says we, we need to, to live humility. But again, it, it, it's not needed if you're by yourself. If you live all by yourself on a deserted island, none of this applies. Unless you get angry at yourself once in a while. And maybe you need humility. But Paul says also we need more than humility. We need gentleness, which is another word for meekness, which is what is in the Greek. And I love P.T. O'Brien's description of meekness. He says, meekness is to characterize the lives of Christians in relation to fellow believers who have sinned by bearing one another's burdens because they fulfill the law of Christ. Meekness is to characterize the lives of Christians in relation to fellow believers who have sinned by bearing one another's burdens. Meekness, gentleness and meekness means we bear the sins of those who sin against us. As Christ has done for us. Gentleness is is power under control. Gentleness is the ability to, by God's power, control your emotions and your desires. Humility. Gentleness. Worthy character. Paul goes on to say something more. He said, look, there's also patience. Aristotle said this about about long-suffering and patience. He said, the greatest Greek virtue is the refusal to tolerate any insult and readiness to strike back. 
The greatest Greek virtue is the refusal to tolerate any insult and readiness to strike back. And sadly, I've seen that in the Christian world. And Paul says, that is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way of God's people. It's not the behavior behavior that sustains unity. The patient saint does not complain about suffering for Christ. The patient saint does not complain when they are hurt and offended at the hands of enemies or friends. And oftentimes, it's the friends that hurt the most. It's, it's hard not to want to retaliate, to be long-suffering. It's hard not to come up with a hundred ways when I'm driving on the road and somebody cuts me off. Okay, what are the ways that I can let this person know they did something wrong? I want to teach them justice. I want to help them see the right way. And I can think of a, a number of things I want to do. Just driving close to them. Showing my displeasure. Or driving alongside of them. Making them get off an exit they don't want to get off of. (laughs) Now none of you have ever done that. I understand. But those have been my temptations. We're to have worthy character. With one another. Grace Church must be willing, must be passionate, must be committed to exemplifying humility towards one another. Practically. To be willing to be gentle, to be meek towards one another when we are offended, when we are hurt, when we are sinned against, which which will happen, which has already happened in our church. And which will happen again. And it's not because we desire to do so. It's just the world in which we live. It's who we are. We're being progressively sanctified. We are being changed by the grace of God. But that change is slow. And in the process of slowly changing, in the process of trying to be conformed to the image of Christ in the process of that transformation I don't always make it the way I'm supposed to and neither do you humility gentleness patience and bearing with one another in love Paul says with patience bearing with one another in love When we bear with one another's weaknesses and failures, especially in the midst of conflict and tensions, we're living a lifestyle consistent with this divine calling to walk in a manner that is worthy. When a non-Christian fails us or hurts us, I mean, it's often easier to bear, but, but what if the person who hurts you is a Christian? What's your attitude supposed to be towards them? 
Paul's attitude is that we're to endure wrong and suffer the slight that has come our way. Enduring wrong and suffering doesn't mean we compromise truth. But it might be that we never come to agreement with someone. It might be they'll never see our perspective. It might be that the person who hurt you will never come and ask for your forgiveness. How are you to bear in love with them? What does that look like? What does that look like practically? I think Paul helps us out in verse 3 by saying this. In the NIV, he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. In the ESV, he says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's our worthy cause. We have a worthy calling. We've been called by Christ to walk in a manner that reflects our salvation. We have, we're to have worthy character. Which builds the foundation of how we can walk in unity with one another. And thirdly, we have a worthy cause. Being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Keeping the bond of peace in the bond of peace. Let me be very practical. We're not, I'm not speaking about unity at any price. We don't, we don't pursue unity at the price of theological truth. We don't pursue unity when justice needs to be adjudicated. But we do pursue unity in our church and with other believers by first and foremost being eager to maintain it. Maintain or guard the unity of our of the Spirit in our own hearts. Maintain it. Guard. The, the word maintain there literally means guard. Guard your heart from bitterness. Guard your heart from hatred. Guard your heart from anger. Guard your heart from envy. Guard your heart from jealousy. Guard your heart from retaliation and vengeance. Guard your heart from gossip. Guard your heart from slander. been a pastor for 31 years. Been a part of a church that entire time. In sovereign grace. And in 31 years, the one thing that has been sadly consistent is how quickly gossip and slander and disunity can insidiously find its way into the life of a local church. And I think it, it, it typically does not come in an explosion. It's subtle. Satan is patient. He doesn't mind taking a decade to sow seeds of discord in the life of a local church. To sow seeds of suspicion in the life of of a local church. 
we are we have a worthy cause and that is to be eager to guard the unity of the spirit by guarding our own hearts from discord from envy from jealousy from slander and gossip and the way we we must do that is we must not speak evil of anyone I don't I don't know who has hurt you or what they've done but I can guarantee you everybody in this room has a scar from a relationship Regardless, you must never speak evil of them. Must never speak evil. Now here's the harder part. Because you don't typically speak evil if you don't see them. Well, what happens when you see them? You bump into somebody. I remember that happened to me many, many years ago in Atlanta the church that I was one of the pastors at decided that they wanted to leave Sovereign Grace and the senior pastor decided that I didn't want to leave Sovereign Grace. He wanted to leave Sovereign Grace. And, you know, he, he had his reasons. And so I, I, I got let go. I got fired. And a week later, the church left Sovereign Grace. And so I'm in Atlanta without a job, a wife, two kids, couple cars, nice house with no skill whatsoever uh, other than to be a pastor it's like what am I going to do and God in his mercy and in, uh, in an amazing way provided and cared for us and um, we were able to replant the church it's just a wonderful time but I remember a year later I was down at this ministry event down in Atlanta, downtown Atlanta and there's, there's probably 2,000 people there. two or 3,000 people there. And, of course, guess who I bump into? Yeah, him. And it was at that moment, I just, I felt like my heart had dropped all the way down into my feet. And I just, I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how I wanted to say what I wanted to say. I, I just, there was just, uh, because I knew there was still bitterness in my heart. I knew there was still some unforgiveness in my heart and I and it was at that moment I had a choice and the choice that I wanted to make was the one that would have felt so much better but I hugged him and he hugged me back and I remember he took my face in his hands Larry how are you doing I wanted a headbutt him but he <laughs> But I remember we just stopped and we had a brief conversation and I went on. And it, it, it was just a, a watershed moment for me. Lord, this, there's more beyond. We're, we're still brothers in Christ. We don't agree. And some things happen between us that, that, seem, that are unresolved. But, but we are brothers in Christ. And I need to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I need to guard that. 
because it's a reflection on Christ and the church. It's a reflection of my relationship with you. So let us not speak evil of anyone. Let us not withdraw from anyone, even if they have withdrawn from us, especially at times when it's awkward. And let us pray for unity. Let us pray for the unity of this church. Let us pray for the unity of the church universal. Let us pray for unity where there's been separation. But that doesn't mean you have to meet with somebody time and time again. Except that sometimes peace is not possible. If the other person is unwilling to meet or acknowledge wrongdoing, and then we must place this separation in God's capable hands and say, you know what? It's up to the Lord. I'm not the one to, to resolve this. I'm not the one to solve this. Now, let me, let me say this. I, I, know, I know what I've walked through throughout my Christian life. I, I know the churches that I've been in and, and the difficulties and some of the, the, the disunity that has occurred at times. And I am aware that when I go through a season like that, because I'm so acutely attuned to what just happened to me, I'm, I'm very eager and I'm very vigilant to not let it happen again. And I can assume I'm immune to it happening again. And I am not. We are not immune to disunity occurring within Grace Church. Even in the midst of a season that this church, many in this church have walked through, that has hurt you and affected you. Don't assume that you are immune from this happening down the road. Don't assume that you're immune from seeds of suspicion being sown. Don't, um, don't assume that you could be immune from gossip or slander. Don't assume that you are immune in this church from disunity. We are never immune. We have an enemy who is hell-bent on the destruction of the local church, who is hell-bent on dividing. And so, as Paul writes, we must be eager to maintain, to guard the unity of the Spirit. Why? Because in verse 4, he says, there is one body. We are one body. We, there is one Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit who has united us. Just as we were called to one hope, there is just one salvation that belongs to your call. There's one Lord who is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one faith. There is one baptism. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That is who unites us. Brothers, we want to walk in a manner that is worthy. Sisters, we want to walk in a manner that is worthy of the call. We want to walk with character that is worthy. We want to walk in such a way for a great cause. It's a worthy cause to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I'm not concerned about where we are now. I think we're doing well as a church. I think we, we're aware of the temptations. We're aware of the, the schemes of the evil one. 
But five years from now, what will we be thinking of? Many counseling situations, whether it's a husband and wife or a couple of people in the church, there are often times when there is a disunity and an offense gets brought up. And it's not surprising when that offense which has created a separation, a disunity, is as old as seven or eight years old. Never dealt with. Let's keep short accounts here. Let's be eager to maintain, which means you're eager to go. You're eager to make things right. You're eager to reconcile. You're eager to see the unity of the faith. You're eager to grow in your character of humility and Patience and gentleness and bearing with one another in love. You are eager. You are eager to do those things. Because we do it all for the glory of God. A divided church, no matter how you say it, brings shame to the name of Christ. A unified church speaks volumes to a world. Let's be that.